Please open your Bibles to Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. As Christians, we believe that God has given us both a general revelation and a special revelation, and that the general revelation are the things that can be seen in nature and in the world surrounding us. When we go out and look at the moon or at the starry hosts of the night sky, when we see the beauty of flowers and plants and the fertility of vegetable gardens, that we are being told of many of the character traits of God, many of his perfections and attributes, but that in nature we will never find what we need to be saved, and that God has also given us a special revelation, not general, but special, and that that is his word. And so each time we gather for worship, we come to this word, which is recorded for us here in English in our translations of scripture, originally written in Hebrew and Greek and a little Aramaic, and that we come to this Bible, and we, in our worship, listen to God. And so this morning we are going to listen to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. But before we read that text, uh, let me say a few words that set the scene for those few verses. Children, you know, if you've ever raised any, you know that they are not likely to model behavior that they have never seen. Children learn by example. And if their parents try to tell them to do something but don't show them how to do it, the child either won't learn or it will take much longer for that child to learn. So those of us who have children who are growing in our homes sometimes learn the hard way how closely our children watch us and model their behavior after us. And sadly, not just our good traits, but also many of our bad ones. And it's common knowledge that learning comes by way of example simply, rather than simply by way of instruction. As a matter of fact, many people who study the process of learning will tell us that a good example is almost as valuable in learning as a good picture is in reading, that it's worth a thousand words, they say, of pictures in reading. Well, Paul has been dealing with the Philippians, the Christians in Philippi who are a part of the church there, and It is interesting, by the way, to note that had there been Christians in Philippi who believed that the church of Jesus Christ was beneath them and that they uh, were not um, in need of any physical union with the church, that they could just be Christians on their own, uh, that they would never have heard this, this book, that it would have passed them right by because the book was sent to a specific group of people in a specific place. And uh, many of us know Christians who claim to be Christians without being a part of any particular church. And so as we come to the book, we take it for granted because we have a copy in front of us and we can individualize it. But let's remember, this book was written, the book of Philippians, specifically to a specific group of people and read to them. And their names appear in this book. And what we know from this book is that they were having fights among themselves. Uh, we know specifically about Eudoi and Syntyche that they were not in agreement and it was notorious enough that 
Paul knew about it, having written this book, and that Paul wrote to them and said, I plead with you, Doi and Syntyche, to agree with one another in the Lord. Uh, so anyhow, coming back to the, the situation around our text this morning, the, the church in Philippi was a good church. If you read through all of the epistles and, and compare them, you'll see that Philippians is, is an upbeat book, relatively speaking, but they did have this problem, and that is they did fight. It wasn't just Eudoi and Syntyche. It's clear that all through the book there's an indication of an absence of unity in that church. So here Paul is. He's trying to deal with this lack of unity and to deal with it constructively. And the question comes, well, how do I communicate to them how ridiculous and sinful and, and wicked this lack of unity and this striving among themselves to see who will be the greatest. How do I deal with him about this? And he, you, know, you can see his brain sort of clicking. He goes, well, the most obvious thing to do is to give them an example. But in this particular place, other places, he does use himself as an example, the Apostle Paul. But in this particular place, who does he use as an example? He uses the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where we find our focus this morning, where he jumps into the example of Jesus Christ. But remember, the context is he's trying to motivate this church to forget about their fights and their arguments and their divisions and to come together in sweet unity. Now, as we read this, um, if you look beginning with verse 6, you will see that from verse 6, essentially through verse 11, um, people who study this text believe that this was an early Christian hymn. So as we would have maybe uh, 2,000 years from now, the appearance of, um, in some book that was written, the appearance of Give Thanks and the text of that song. This is the text, we believe, of a song that was sung in the church at the time. Uh, sometimes we wish, I think, that we had the music also, but the music not being inspired, we have just the words. And this was a song, apparently, that the early church would sing about the Lord Jesus Christ, verses 6 through 11. Well, we're going to read verses 6 to 8, excuse me, 5 to 8, the verse immediately prior to the beginning of the hymn with verse 6. And this is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as an introduction to the hymn, we are told that we should have the same attitude as Jesus Christ had. In other words, as Moore says, we should, quote, adopt toward one another in our mutual relations the same attitude which was found in Christ Jesus, unquote. Now, we don't seem to have any problem modeling our behavior and our attitudes after others. Think, for instance, of the huge amount of the gross national product that goes into trying to get us to emulate actors and actresses and sports stars. When you look at the figures that Tiger Woods is pulling down and some of the other sports guys, Beckham and uh, Jordan, 
and you look at the franchise that surrounds their name, you realize that it's very profitable to try to earn money off of the names of people and off the emulation of people. Um, if it's not actors and actresses and sports people, it's uh, the Christian community with uh, people like Rick Warren, where I was looking at an ad last night or this morning, I guess it was in World Magazine, where they had this full-page ad saying, now Rick Warren and the Purpose Driven Church and the whole Purpose Driven Speaking staff will appear on the East Coast for the first time ever. And... Uh, I was also looking recently at, a, uh, at, at an ad for the Praise Gathering up in Indy uh, where they referred to themselves as uh, the, the largest and most historical or something uh, praise and teaching event in the country. And we look at uh, the Christian culture and as usual, the church... Is, is Schaefer, Francis Schaefer said, it's just slightly behind the culture and, and, and does pretty much what the culture does. And so American culture is driven by cults of personality. It's a huge part of American culture. If Beckham affects what uh, an article in The Economist recently said is a metrosexual identity and, and gets waxed, right, then men all over the world start getting waxed. If he shaves his head, men all over the world. Look at, look at uh, Jimmy. Um, now I'm sure Jimmy didn't shave his head because of Beckham but you know it is quite possible that Beckham having shaved his head caused somebody that Jimmy does emulate to shave his head and that's why or it's possible that Jimmy is the one that shaved his head first and then Beckham saw Jimmy and Beckham shaved his head and we have trouble knowing why shaved heads came back in it's not a skinhead thing now although some of us remember that it could have been Um, earrings I can remember back in 1974, no man had an earring except ex-paratroopers from the Second World War and sailors. That was it. But now everybody, everybody has everything pierced, right? And we all think we're so original and so avant-garde in doing it, and we're like lockstep automatons, you know. Well, this is the nature of our culture, and it is the nature of the balance of trade of the United States. This is what we live off of. The whole world emulates us. And this is the nature of the church. We're all personality driven. When we talk about churches, whose church do you go to? I go to Tim Bailey's church. Well, I go to Tom Ellsworth's church. I go... And that's how things work. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that the church doesn't belong to anybody but Jesus Christ. And when the world sees us sucking up to rich men, or to women with sultry voices that have recorded CCM CDs. The world knows that that's not religion. Or the world knows that's religion and not spirituality. And so the Apostle Paul does not point to anybody but to Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul says at the center of your identity and your relationships in a church, don't have me, don't have Apollos, you know, is Christ divided? Have Jesus Christ. And not just Jesus Christ in general, but Jesus Christ at a specific point. Jesus Christ at a specific part of his identity. And what part is that? Well, we didn't take the second half of the hymn this morning. We took only the first half of the hymn. And the reason for that is that it's in the first half of the hymn that we have the part that 
the Apostle Paul uses to shame the Philippians into being kind to one another. And it is the part that speaks of the divinity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. It doesn't present Christ glorified, which is what comes next. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. That's sort of the dessert. All right. He starts, though, by giving us a picture of Christ in his glory in heaven and then showing us what Christ did with that glory in order to save sinful man. So, he doesn't point to any famous Christian. He doesn't point to himself. He doesn't use a personality called of simple creation, but rather he goes to the Creator himself. And he says, look, he is the one that we are to emulate. And to understand the humiliation of Christ, which is the particular aspect of Christ's work that he wants us to focus on so that we'll love one another and be united. To understand this humiliation, which Jesus Christ freely and willingly took on, the Apostle Paul shows us the glory that Christ had with the Father before he was made man. In other words, he answers the question, from what glory and majesty did Christ descend? And if you look at verse 6, and I hope you have your Bibles open in front of you, and you look at verse 6, and you'll see that it says this, speaking of Jesus Christ, who, although he existed in what? In the form of God. So this is where we start. We start with Jesus existing in the form of God. Now this phrase is huge in content. This phrase has been at the center of many long, long, long theological battles through the centuries. Now, I wondered about saying, instead of theological battles, saying truth battles. Because they think all of us have been inoculated to theology, ever having anything good to be said for it. But listen, all of you, if you're believers, sitting in a church today, opening Bibles and studying them, you owe so much of your understanding of God's truth to men in the past who have fought with lies and have shown them to be lies and have anathematized those who have spread those lies. And uh, we're going to get into the meaning of this little phrase, but let's first stop and say it is worth fighting over phrases because over phrases souls are saved and lost. And if you think that it's scandalous that people fight over phrases today, words, just you remember that the entire epistles of the New Testament are the record under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of fighting over particular words. In other words, don't go off in this cosmic thing like, well, you know, just give me Jesus. And, and that's all I want. All right, you go to Jesus. Jesus fights over words. At times, Jesus himself defends himself against attack and an attack that would have been murderous. It would have shed his blood if it had happened. And it did eventually happen. Jesus defended himself by pointing to particular small words. I, I have reason to believe that soon you're going to receive a sermon on this subject uh, from one Chris Taylor. You have to wait for that. But uh, meanwhile, don't ever denigrate, don't ever look down on, don't ever minimize the importance of words and the importance of fighting over words. And as I said, this particular phrase here 
existed, Jesus, in the form of God, has received an awful lot of the argument through the centuries about the nature of the divinity and humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, let me say that on the basis of the rejection of this particular phrase of Scripture, many have fallen into spiritual ruin. A rejection of these words is a rejection of Jesus Christ. Before his humiliation, we are told here that Jesus Christ was in the form of God. Now, sometimes it's translated form, depending on what translation you have, it might be nature. But the word that's translated, nature or form, in your version of Scripture, is the Greek word morphe. And it is the word from which we get the root for our word morphology. And the English word morphology is a good introduction to what is being communicated here. It's defined in Webster's as a branch of biology that deals with the form and structure of animals and plants. And so if we will work our ways backwards to the origin of this word, Jesus had the very form and the very nature of God. And in many different places in Scripture, we are taught the same thing, that Jesus was fully God from before the creation of the world. In Colossians 1, uh, one of the best-known places uh, in Scripture where we get a picture of the glory of Jesus Christ, we read in verses 15 to 17, He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the image of the invisible God. In John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Now, these are parallel places in Scripture where the testimony of the Word of God is to the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. But let's make no mistake about it. Jesus, during his time here on earth, often made the claim that he was God, um, saying such things as, I and the Father are one. And were we to think that we're reading back into the statements of Jesus our predisposition to believe he is God, we should note that consistently the religious leaders of the time accused Jesus of blasphemy, of making himself equal to God. He even did things like forgive sins. This is not something any of us, in my knowledge, have claimed to be able to do. And so the testimony of Christ himself through his words, and, and even if he didn't mean to indicate that he was God to the people that were listening, you could fault him were consistently making the same mistake because consistently when they heard him, that's what they thought he was doing. And, and so Jesus himself, those who write about him in the text of Scripture, 
Uh, all of this points to one point, namely that Jesus Himself is God. That it was through Him that all things were created. That He is the image of the invisible God. That in the beginning He was the Word, He was with God, and He was God. And that in the time to come, He will be worthy of and will receive all glory and honor and power and praise. Now this is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so the common denominator, if you look at the great heresies, for instance, Islam and Mormonism, and in in this time when America is trying to find a way to walk through the minefield of uh, being emulated and hated at the same time, which is always, of course, how we treat our heroes. We hate them and love them at the same time. And particularly as America tries to walk through the minefield of the Mideast where Islam is is the central reality, um, there are a lot of things being said publicly which we as Americans would be misled by if we listened to them. Um, There are many, there's a movement among many who are even missionaries of Christian churches today to minimize the difference between Islam and Christianity and to say, look, the way to reach these people is to, to show them what a high view of Jesus Christ, script, uh, their, their book of, uh, of the Quran has, and to say, show the strong tradition throughout the history of Islam of honoring Jesus Christ and, and making positive statements about him. Now, to some degree, we're getting into issues of strategy here and missions, and I am not a fool enough to think that, uh, having lived my entire life in the United States of America, that I can talk about cross-cultural ministry except if you look at the New Testament, the New Testament does present us with perfect examples of cross-cultural ministry. For instance, when the Apostle Paul stood up in the Areopagus in Athens, Athens was not Jerusalem by any stretch of the imagination because in Athens they had a God on every street corner and the monotheistic Jews would never have done that. And that's why any empire that ever took the Jews that ever took the nation of Israel, sort of laughed at a concept of integrating them into the mainstream of their empire. And the Jews were gloriously ungovernable. (laughs) It was hopeless. Why? Because right at the beginning, they were monotheistic, and this did not fit with Rome and the pantheon of gods. It didn't fit with Greece. It just never fit. So... When we come to the issue of the nature of Jesus Christ, and when we hear people ministering in the context of northern Africa, Saharan Africa, or even southern Africa, where Islam has made inroads and is beginning to uh, get great numbers of converts, and they tell us, look, the way to minister to these people is to hold out to them the high view of Jesus Christ in the book of Quran. And remember, you Americans, you've not done cross-cultural ministry, We go to the book of Acts to look at our model for cross-cultural ministry and there we see the absolute unflinching statement by the Apostle Paul in the Areopagus with all these gods all the way around saying to them the same thing that is said in the Old Testament again and again and again which is all the gods of the nations are idols the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Now that's not an inclusive statement. All the gods of the nations are idols. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said in the Areopagus in Athens when he got together with all the sophisticated people who the Bible tells us spent their entire lives hovering around waiting for the next modern idea. That's how the book of Acts describes Athens. 
Well, the Apostle Paul goes in there, and what does he proclaim? If we were to reduce it to its essence, what he proclaims is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ alone is the hope of salvation. And so again, coming back to the question of the divisive nature of what Paul is revealing here and what of all of Scripture reveals and what our Lord revealed about Himself, namely, that He is God. This splits the world. Now, think in your mind for a second and ask yourself, more specifically than the world, what else does it split? Well, it does split Christianity and Judaism and Islam. Because Islam does not confess and Judaism rejects explicitly and killed him for his profession that Jesus Christ is God. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, again, they fail. They say that Jesus Christ is God's Son, but that He is inferior to God. They claim that when Jesus was born, He was fully man, not fully man and fully God. Christian scientists say quite clearly that Jesus was just a man. We go to their holy book, Science and Health with a Key to the Scriptures, and there we read, quote, the Christian believes that Christ is God, Jesus Christ is not God, unquote. The Muslims say that Christ was just one more important prophet, like Moses, but that he wasn't God. From the Quran we read, quote, those who say that God is Christ, the Son of Mary, are blaspheming. Christ, the Son of Mary, was no more than an apostle. Many were the apostles that passed away before him. Unquote. Now look, there's no way to bring a synthesis from that and the Bible. The two are mutually opposed. So often today in our efforts to be inclusive, uh, we really only are patronizing our enemies. Our enemies clearly understand that there's no compromise between Christianity and Islam. We're not deluding them. We're deluding ourselves. It's all about us trying to think that we can go another hundred years and be an empire without anybody threatening us. And so we think, well, you know, Islam is a very peaceful religion. Well, it's not. Jihad has been at the center of Islam from the very beginning. And, you know, we can think that if, if we just blithely go on and say nice things to the pussycat, the pussycat will be nice. Well, this ain't no pussycat. This is a heresy. It's a direct copy of Christianity. It is a copy just like Mormonism is, where the holy book of the Bible is copied in such a way as to lead to the results that they want. Now, you might think I'm being unfair at this point, but look, truth is good. And here's the truth. The truth is that the Book of Mormon is simply a copy of the, the Bible. That's all it is. And the truth is that from the very beginning, the leaders of Mormonism coming out of the burned-over district of, of northern New York uh, had sacks at the center of their religion. Now, that's a religion that I can identify with. All right, you men understand what I'm talking about, and women, I'm afraid, you do also. Um, 
Hey, come on, you guys. It doesn't, it doesn't take a Ph.D. to understand a religion that started by a guy that, that likes to have lots of sex. I mean, that's what the ancient fertility cults were all about. And there's a reason why Mormons have always been trying to squelch polygamy. It's there at the foundation of the religion. And the religion, guess what? The religion has God coming down onto the earth and having sex to produce Jesus. Funny thing, even their God is into sex. And yet, we walk around pussyfooting as if this is something to be treated with dignity. Why? Well, because they've got you know, lots of people in the FBI and, and very good hotels, the Marriott... You know, and, and, and they're right next to us, and they come into our church. A number of times we've had Mormons come into our church, and they wear their little thing that says, Elder such and such, and Elder such and such. And this is going on around the country. They're going to Christian worship services. And here's another interesting thing. Every year there's a, a meeting of the Christian Booksellers Convention. It's a 3 to $4 billion a year business now, and they have a huge marketing orgy every year in Atlanta or one of the great metropolitan areas. And it's so big and there's so many stores and there's such profit there that the Mormons have come in and want to be considered a Christian organization and allowed to exhibit there. And they have actually in past years, I don't know if they're currently still doing this, but they've actually allowed Mormon groups to come in and be exhibitors at the Christian Booksellers Convention. And if you do a simple Google search on the Internet, you will find that again and again and again the Mormons are selling themselves as Christians. Now, why would you, if you had a religion that had sex at its center and marriage eternally and you could, like, go get your own planet and, 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 you know, do it, right, and have lots of kids who then themselves could become gods just like Jesus, why would you even want to claim that that's Christianity? Well, because Satan intrinsically is a counterfeiter. Satan is only able to suck vitality out of living organisms, and so everybody always wants, you know, I always think of the image of being on a boat out in the ocean, which one time I was, and sitting up in the prow and watching the dolphins surf off the speed of the boat. And as they come near that boat that's sending a wake out, it all of a sudden, boom, you know, and they jump forward because they're surfing off it. Well, that's what Satan has to do. He has to surf off of the truth and the vitality of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why all of these things are sort of synthetic productions from partial Scripture and then partial Joseph Smith. And if you don't know about Joseph Smith and you think I'm being unfair, go and study him. Read the history surrounding him. Read the history surrounding the Mormon church. And what you will see is that it's an amazing amalgamation corruption of Christianity and just the normal lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eye and the pride of life. Now, nothing of the Sermon on the Mount there. You know, it would be more like the sermon according to uh, all these uh, nasty um, uh, emails that all of a sudden I've started getting. It's like out of nowhere I start getting ten a day. And they're all one thing. Well, no, there are two things. It's sex and money, right? And they know my age, apparently, so they, they know how to appeal to me, right? And they know I'm a man. Well, if you go into 
the Quran. And if you look at heaven for the Quran, and if you look at historically what Christians have written about what heaven will be for Muslims, again, it's the same issue of just one long sexual orgy in heaven. Now, let's, let's be clear here. Jesus is the one who said that in heaven there will what? Be neither marrying nor the giving of marriage. All right? But when you create your own religion, it's amazing how it always ends up looking like you. Now, the thing I like about the Gospels is you can open up the Gospels at any point and wherever you open it up, you will find something that is completely not you. <laughs> you know, like the Sermon on the Mount. Which of us would ever come up with that? You know? The meek shall inherit the earth. No, no, no. The United States is an empire. Because we have nuclear warheads and even Korea can't touch us. You know? Um, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. What an attack there is on this statement of Scripture that Jesus was the image of God, of the invisible God, that Jesus existed in the form, the morphe of God. Jesus is not God-like. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not created. Jesus is God. And if you want the most certain way of protecting yourselves from being deluded and led into a cult, all you have to do is study what that cult says about the divinity of Christ. It's an absolutely certain way of protecting yourselves. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a shortcut to making certain of what it is that you're being led into. Now, Jesus is God. Jesus was God. Jesus existed from eternity past in the glory of heaven. He and his Father were one, but that is not where Paul leads us as he preaches humility and unity and love to the church in Philippi. He then goes on and says this. He says that if you look at your Bibles he says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, so picture a fist and picture divinity, picture the glory of heaven and the glory of Jesus Christ. And then you get this image of this that we're being taught. This was not something that Jesus grasped. Now think of grasping. And think how the more insecure your grip on something, the more you tend to grasp at it. I've often had the painful experience of counseling um, a married couple, one of the partners, who has all of a sudden had it revealed to them that their wife or their husband is slipping away. And they come in and they're desperate. And what they took for granted for 10 or 20 years, they're now grasping. And they'll grasp at anything to hold on to that spouse because all of a sudden they realize 
that they don't possess that spouse anymore. And so the fist gets tighter and tighter. I always think of taking trash out. And you've got a very heavy plastic bag and it's slippery. And you're holding one here and one here so you can't double your grip. And as you go out to the curb, it's a very short distance, all of a sudden you feel it slipping. And so you tighten down your fist, hoping to hold until you get... And it just keeps slipping and slipping. Well, the Bible tells us about Jesus that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what this shows us is that Jesus was God because he could let his grip go on the glory of divinity as he came to this earth. He didn't grasp onto it. He wasn't desperate to prove. I mean, you think about Beckham being desperate to prove he's a good soccer player. It's laughable. And it's just as laughable for Jesus Christ to be desperate to prove to us his glory as God himself. And that's one of the most beautiful things of testimony too. The glory of Jesus Christ is how he did take it and turn aside from it as an act of love for us. Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, did what? It says in verse 7, he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And here, the Apostle Paul comes right to the center of what he is trying to point us to in leading us to love and humility. And the point he's pointing us to is that Jesus Christ, God himself, emptied himself. He became a bondservant. He was made in the likeness of men. And then in verse 8, He went on and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on the cross. Now, the entry point for Jesus Christ emptying himself is the point at which he is made in the likeness of men. And again, we don't like to think of the practicalities of the flesh and blood realities of Jesus Christ being made in the likeness of men, but the Gospels show this to us. The Gospels show us Jesus Christ in the womb of a woman. The Gospels show us Jesus Christ being born from the womb of a woman. So it doesn't pull back from showing us the humiliation of divinity in becoming humanity. Now think about this. Think about God Himself taking on the form of man inside the womb of a woman and being given birth to. And then think that His life was a life You think, well, if God is going to have his son come to earth and take on manhood in order to do the work of salvation, surely he'll allow him to have the closest thing to divinity on earth that he can possibly have, which would be that he would be born to the emperor of Rome. You know, that he'd be raised in Pharaoh's household by his daughter or his wife or something like that. But what we see with Jesus is that he's born to a poor woman in disgrace because of her conception, not by her betrothed during the time of betrothal, in a poor land and then not even in the motel but actually in the back in a cave or somewhere where they kept the livestock with all the cattle and everything around and the smells and the dirt and the noise, everything like that. But then his whole life is like this. His whole life is a life of poverty. He likely worked with his father. Uh, Joseph is a carpenter. And then we know about the three years of his ministry that he said himself that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he lived off alms. He lived off people giving him money, which is not a proud thing to do. 
And all through his life, he barely escaped getting killed all the time. And then Paul says, all right, but look at his death, all right? And for his death, the way he deals with it, again, is through shorthand, even death on a cross. And we don't get that feeling because the cross to us is a glorious thing. We have it at the center. But Annie Laurie Gaylor, who uh, years ago was fighting to get crosses off of all government property, said the thing that needs to hit us, which is the cross, uh, you're putting it up on a public place is like taking an electric chair and having it all over our country. And that gets closer at what the cross is. But it doesn't get nearly close enough because you can have dignity. After all, you're not strict when you're put in an electric chair. All right? And you're not put up on the crossroads where everybody going in and out of Jerusalem sees you. And you don't have an entire tradition in your religion that cursed is he who hangs on a cross. And so here we see Jesus, God himself, made flesh humiliation, made flesh in the belly of a woman, given birth to, back in a manger, working with his hands, three years of public ministry, which he did not have a place to lay his head, which he lived off alms, in which he was hated and opposed, in which his teachings were rejected, in which when he said, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you shall have no part in me. And at that point, the vast majority of those who followed him departed. They were so scandalized by what he taught. And then when he's arrested, his disciples flee. And then when he's brought to trial, no one stands with him. And then when he's taken to the cross, he is alone. He is stripped naked. He is laughed at. He is mocked. He is scorned. He has a crown of thorn put on his head. And then the parts of his body most sensitive are the parts that get the nails. And then he hangs until he's asphyxiated. And this is God. Now, ask yourself the question. If this is the lover of your life, the lover that will be there when your husband is long in the grave, how absurd that we are concerned about our self-image and self-determination and autonomy and our pride. How absurd that we will strive among ourselves to see which of us is the greatest. I mean, it is absolutely absurd. We claim to worship Jesus Christ and then we argue as to which of us has the best loudspeakers or the best taste in music or the cleanest car on Sunday morning. Now, I'm using those as examples because they're so pathetic. Really, spiritual churches argue over who has the best doctrine. And it's all the, it's all the mindless wanderings of an ant colony. And here we have our Lord Jesus Christ up on the cross, bearing on himself the sins of the world. And we're in the upper room, striving among ourselves to see which of us is the greatest. And, and one of us, a couple of us send our mother to Jesus asking if we can have the seats of honor in the kingdom that comes. I mean, this is what happened. So what's the lesson? Well, the lesson is clear. If you'll go to the beginning of chapter 2, here's... This pastor dealing with this church, these particular people, including Eudoi and Syntyche, who are not agreeing with one another in the Lord. 
This pastor says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy, the pastor's heart speaking, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And now the example. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 